Let's talk about lessons learned on Country Road and a bit about reflecting now. I, I always recommend to you guys my, some of my favorite authors, and I've told you through the years that Frederick Buechner is probably my favorite author, and he just has stood the test of time with me. Uh, people ask me, they say, if I'm going to read Buechner, where would I start? Because the guy's written over 40 books. Uh, these little books, they're small books. There's three of them actually in the set. Uh, but these three books are where I would start, if I were you, with Frederick Buechner. And I could not recommend an author more highly. Uh, the first book is Now and Then, and this is a memoir of the first half of his life. The second book of the trilogy is covering the second half of his life. It's called Sacred Journey. And then Telling Secrets is the third book, and it's kind of an overview of the entire thing. Um, but in his memoirs, he says in the, um, in the beginning of Now and Then, speaking of this matter of writing biographies, I do it because it seems to me that no matter who you are and no matter how eloquent or otherwise, if you tell your own story with sufficient candor and concreteness, it will be an interesting story and in some sense a universal story. I write my biography also in the hope of encouraging others to do the same. To look back over their own lives as I've looked back over mine for certain themes and patterns and signals that are so easy to miss when you're caught up in the process of living them. If God speaks to us at all other than through such official channels as the Bible and the church, then I think God speaks to us largely through what happens to us. So what I've done both in this book and in its predecessor is to listen back over what has happened to me, as I hope my readers may be moved to listen back over what has happened to them for the sound above all else of the divine voice. Because the word that God speaks to us is always an incarnate word. A word spelled out to us, not alphabetically in syllables, but enigmatically in events. This is the alphabet of grace. The people, the places, the things of our life, the books we've read and the movies we see. The chances are we will never get it just right. We are so used to hearing what we want to hear and remaining deaf to what it would be well for us to hear that it's hard to break the habit. But if we keep our hearts and minds open as well as our ears, if we listen with patience and hope to our past, if we remember it all deeply and honestly, then I think we come to recognize beyond all doubt that however faintly we may hear God, it is God indeed that is speaking to us. And however little we may understand of the word, God's word to each of us is both recoverable and precious beyond telling. In that sense, autobiography becomes a way of praying. And a book like this, if it matters at all, matters mostly as a call to prayer. So this will be prayer today as we reflect back on our eight years here on Country Road. One more thing, this from his preface to Sacred Journey. He says, my interest in the past is not, I think, primarily nostalgic. Like everybody else, I rejoice in much of it and marvel at those moments when less by effort than by grace, it comes to life again with extraordinary power and immediacy. Vanished faces and voices, the feeling was what, of what it was like to fall in love for the first time, of running as a child through the firefly dusk of summer, the fresh linen 
and cinnamon and servant-swept fragrance of my grandmother's house in Pennsylvania, the taste of snow, the stubbly touch of my father's good night. But even if it were possible to return to those days, I would never choose to. What quickens my pulse now is the stretch ahead rather than the one behind. And it's mainly for some clue to where I'm going that I search through where I have been, for some hint as to who I am becoming or failing to become that I delve into what I used to be. I listen back to a time when nothing was much farther from my thoughts than God, for an echo of the gutturals and sibilance and vileness by which I believe that even then God was addressing me out of my life as he addresses us all. And it is because I believe that that I think of my life and of the lives of everyone who has ever lived or will ever live as not just journeys through time, but as sacred journeys. My assumption is that the story of any one of us is in some measure the story of us all. So we reflect back lessons learned in this chapter called Country, Country Road. I don't have these in any sequence and I'm sure some of them will double back on themselves and it would be wonderful today just to break into circles for some of us that have been here the longest and some that have been here the shortest just to reflect on our own personal lessons but let me try to put voice to some that I think all of us to some degree have learned here. The first thing that I think I have learned and has been reinforced to me over the last eight years and it seems like just yesterday, Ron, that we had that special service and the architects and the builders were here and we were moving into this place and we were so excited. Over these last years, I have come to a fuller conviction that our church, and let me say it this way carefully, our church has a special mission, but we are not a special flower. And I think it's important to recognize both of those things. By the latter statement that we are not a special flower, it was our purpose when we began this church 14 years ago not to be presumptuous and not to fall prey to the hubris of a lot of church planners and Roy act like we were going to do it like nobody had ever done it before. We knew we weren't going to do it like nobody had ever done it before except that we were going to do it as imperfectly as they. An incredible admixture of frailty and beauty just like all the other churches before us. Our church is not a special flower. Our church is a church like so many other churches. We do the same business of church. We teach our kids. We nurture relationships. We provide pastoral care. We gather together for worship. Our church is very similar to all the churches that gather in this town. Many things we do are incredibly the same. And yet, with that said, our church has a very special mission that we have felt from the beginning. And I suppose any church in this town worth their salt would feel the same and would articulate theirs. But our special mission is a mission that we have felt from the beginning and it has been especially heightened in the eight years that we have been here and we have certainly taken a journey with, with this mission, maturing into it every day. And that mission is that we believe we are a part of a reformative movement within the Christian church that has as one of its chief missions, if not its chief mission, 
to disabuse the Christian church of a fear-based view of God. I will say that again. This church has taken it upon itself to join a part of a Christian reformation, to move people away from the idea of a strictly bifurcated why-in-the-road judgment where this life is simply a training ground for a day when we're all going to stand and either enter in eternally and infinitely to eternal bliss or eternal torture with the majority of human beings going the way of torture. It is our estimation that Christianity, the Judeo-Christian community, over time has a trajectory and that trajectory is moving us little by little away from a capricious, whimsical God, a God to be feared, a God of horror and terror, a God from whose wrath we need to be saved. We believe that even within the Judeo-Christian text there is a trajectory moving us from that very fear-based view where people hide behind bushes at the very sound of God's footsteps to the ultimately, seemingly scariest book in the Bible, beginning with God telling a man named John who wrote it that he didn't have to fear. Fear not, even more than I love you, was the major refrain that fell from the lips of Jesus. And as the writer of Proverbs and the writer of Psalms moved deeper into the trajectory, they literally said, agreeing with one another, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it is not the end of wisdom, it's not even the body of wisdom, it's certainly not the maturation and completion of wisdom. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but ultimately we hear the refrain from the end of what we call the New Testament, the Epistle of John, that love, when it is completed, will cast out, say it with me, love, when it is perfected, will cast out all fear. Not just fear, but all fear. And specifically in that chapter, the writer was referring to the fear of God. Ultimately, Jesus was not lying to us when Jesus said again and again to sinner and saint alike that they had nothing to fear in the presence of God. We believe for the first 2,000 years of the Christian church, we have been a maturing bunch. We have been a trajectory-based bunch, and we are moving little by little into a more perfect and complete and mature understanding of God and that is a view that alleviates that horrific fear that so many of us grew up with. As a child, uh, for whatever reason, my life was marred by that view of God. My life was shaped by that view of God. And there were many times over the last two decades when I literally wanted to get as far away from the people and the institution that had taught me those macabre things and I many times considered matriculating beyond Christianity but even when I was willing and ready to let go of it, it never let go of me and as I settled back into Christianity I found that within Christianity, within scripture was the seeds of its own healing and the seeds of its own maturation and ultimately, I believe this is the direction of the Christian church. And I believe that idea of judgment and eternal torment 
and a majority of people estranged from God from eternity, I believe these things to the body of Christ are the same as wisdom teeth and appendixes are to your physical body. They are things that we are evolving, thanks be to God, out of. And our church, yes, you can applaud for that. It's worthy of applause. And our church has as its mission this idea of reshaping people's view of God and proclaiming a view of God that will draw people and legitimately be worthy of the title Good News. Second thing that has been reinforced to me as I've been here uh, at this location over the last eight years. I made a little post on Facebook this morning as I was musing about this to myself, is this fact. We come to church, to a church, we choose a church. There are people in this room who've been here since the first Sunday and there are people in this room who are visiting for the first time. And to everybody, including them and in between, the reality is people come to a church for many reasons. I have seen people start attending a church because it had the best softball team in the church softball league. No kidding. Um, I've been on several of those softball teams. We often on those church softball teams had what we called Philistines or Gentiles. They were these out-of-pocket people who didn't go to our church and um, they played, but several of them ultimately through the years I saw begin coming to our church, especially when it was like state tournament time and if they didn't attend church, we could not credibly take them on the church bus to state. Um, so I've seen people come to church for all kinds of reasons. People come to church because of the mission of the church, the vision of the church, the programs of the church, the children's ministry of the church, the music of the church, the worship service of the church, the personalities of the leadership, the location and the geography. There are many, many reasons. If we stood one by one and gave the first and primary reason that caused us to begin attending this church, there would be dozens of reasons in this room if not hundreds. But while it's true that we come to church for many reasons, after 14 years pastoring here, seven years at Christ Church, three years back in Arkansas, that's 10, that's 24, almost a quarter of a century of ministry, and it doesn't take ministerial licensure to see this, but I have found what my mentor L.H. Hardwick taught me is true. People come to church for many, many reasons, and they stay essentially for two. Two. Now, the interesting thing about that guy, my mentor pastored one church for 59 years. Can you imagine that? He pastored one church for 59 years. Now, there are people who stay in a church, Roy, for 59 years, but they drag it all the way to the ground through the retirement. He literally, birth through 59, pastored a prevailing church that became one of the 50 most influential churches in America, even in his last years. And he and I were talking years after I left there, and I was pastoring here, and we were talking about the grief of people leaving and the joy of people coming. And he said, you ought to pastor somewhere 59 years. He said, not only have I experienced people coming and going, he said, I've experienced people going and coming back four or five times. 
He told me one family, I'll never forget, Tim, he said, so-and-so, he called the family, he said, they were here four, gone 13, back 11, gone 9, back 6, gone 3, and now they're back again. That's when you pastor somewhere 59 years. The reality is, I have never seen the local church as a cult that people were demanded to loyally attend forever once they started going there. Lives shift. Things change. We change jobs. We change schools. We change locations. It is highly appropriate that at times you will shift your place in the body of Christ and go to another congregation. People should be allowed to leave a congregation with no bridges burned and when they decide to come back, they should come back and we should act like they never left because they've always been a part of us and things shift. The 14 months between Christ Church and here that I took off from church was one of the best things I ever did for my spiritual journey. And I needed to do that without any shoulds and without any shame. And so people do leave and people do move and there's nothing wrong with that intrinsically. But people stay in a church for a couple of reasons, long term. And those reasons are over and over again proven to be relationships and meaning. Those two things. No matter how much you like the attractors that bring you to church, you will get used to them. And as you follow normal human psychology and get used to the shiny new thing, the things about the place or the relationships that annoy you will begin to surface. Anybody ever been married? This is human relationship 101. And the reality is, I'll never forget, and I talk about him all the time, Brother Hardwick called our entire staff together. This was after 50 years of pastoring. He called our entire staff together and he was lamenting the fact that as a mega church, we did an internal study, like many churches, we did an internal study because on the surface we were growing, but the reality is, like a lot of churches and especially the mega church model, our growth was simply a net effect of growth because our front door always stayed bigger than our back door. Mark, you know what I'm talking about as a pastor. As long as we could keep the front door bigger than the back door, there was always a net effect of growth. And we grew and became the largest church in Middle Tennessee. And Brother Hardwick couldn't stand it because he had pastored that church as a small church less than 500 for, 50, for 40 years. And he began to get a sense that in spite of the fact we were growing and we were the biggest church in Middle Tennessee, something was amiss. And he found out that our congregation was turning over more than 80% every three to four years. So our back door was huge. But when you're in Music City and you have a 250 voice choir and you have a guy who loves the way L.H. Hardwick did and you have the money beginning to come in where you can hire. All I did was preach. I just got in my trail and just preached. And all Andy did was music and Brother Hardwick led. And we had 60 people on staff and it just, but something was amiss and people were leaving. And people were coming. 
So he gathered us in a room and he said, I want us to think about 10 good families that have left this church. And I'll never forget, it wasn't a grease board, it was an old chalkboard. He did everything, coal oil, lantern, and quill in inkwell. And so he, he, he was one of those old-time old, old time preachers. He literally, Steve, it's true, Barbara's true, didn't he? He mowed the yard with his tie on. Now, he always would tuck it in his shirt because he didn't want to get grass on it, but he was old school, but he was brilliant. Got in that room, and we put, on their figure, we put the ten families up on that board who had left that we knew, and they were significant families in the church. And he asked us, why we thought they had left, and he allowed us to spend an hour taking the chalk, and Lee, we, Carol, we went down underneath every name and listed all the reasons. Hurt feelings, theology, you know, all, all the reasons. Pound of flesh is a pound of flesh. All the reasons. We get to the end, and he walks up to the board, and he takes the chalk, and he, Carol, he just X'd right through it, and he said, not true. Tommy, he began, he was your pastor for a long time. He began to explain that there were hundreds, even thousands of people in our church who shared those same reasons and were still here. And he finally concluded, and I have since come to believe what is true that these things were the presenting factors verbally of why these people had left but subconsciously maybe even below their own awareness he proved to us beyond a shadow of a doubt and my life has proven it since that those while the presenting factors weren't the underlying cause every one of those families were lacking significant relationships at the church Either they had moved on, they had lost them, but they were lacking them. Not only were they lacking those things, but consistently through those, they were people who had gotten lost in the shuffle of a mega church and were lacking significance or meaning. And he erased the entire board and he used the word intimacy. He put up intimacy and significance. And he explained to us that no matter how well things are going and how many things people like about a church, if long-term they do not walk into a room whose nature automatically should nurture and facilitate, whose, you know, our, the, the entire idea of Christianity and the Lord's table should nurture intimacy and relationship. If people consistently walk into that room, doesn't matter how good the preaching is, how good the programs are, if they walk in, and Michael, they do not connect eyes with people that they actually love and are loved by. Eventually, something about that experience will begin to wear thin for them. And they will begin to find other reasons. And the same is true of meaning. If they walk into a place and they feel no part of the mission, and they feel like they are such a dispensable, invisible part that if they disappeared, no one would know and the church would not be less if those two things are missing conversely he showed us he began to go through dozens of people I remember the first six people he put up on the board he said they can't stand me and I'm the senior pastor 
I'll never forget, he hurt my feelings one time, Andy. He put a couple people up and he said, I know for a fact they don't like you. And I thought, really? I didn't know that. Thanks for telling me. But Mary went through a whole list of people and he proved that they had exception and umbrage. They drove from an hour away. It wasn't the perfect place geographically on mission or the music style. But again and again, Deb, you know what they had? They had relationships that they couldn't leave and they felt like a significant part and they were needed. And I just want to say to those who've been here 14 years, you've got relationships and significance. For those who've been here a couple and you're starting to see the flaws, help us make some relationships and become a meaningful part. You'll be amazed how it will change your perspective on the church. So that's that's something I've learned here on Country Road that I don't, I, I knew it abstractly and he had taught me that, but time has proven that here. Third thing that I've learned here on Country Road is church is pretty simple, but people are complex. That's us, all of us. By, by the fact that church is simple, I don't mean church is easy because church is hard work. Running, a running an organization that only thrives when hundreds of people are intricately connected with one another and offering their time, talent, and services, running a volunteer organization of the magnitude of a church and having theological and even at times political underpinnings to that place, there is a vast complexity, a matrix of personality that is tender to say the least. But church in itself is not rocket science. We have five or six things that we are called to do really well. And if we do them well, we are a prevailing church. We are called as a congregation to have a prevailing children's and youth ministry. We do not have a higher call here than our birth through 18-year-old children. We, we simply do not. A lot of us could make it on our own. A lot of us have enough church and enough history and enough books and enough relationships, but our children are passing this way for the first time and we are called to impact our children spiritually, to nurture their souls in such a way that by the time they're 18 years old, we have children who have not only a fondness for the divine and for humanity and a call to impact the world, but they also have a fondness for church. That's why I told Anna when she first came here, and I told Jennifer Smith before her and Terry Jackson before her, and whoever comes next, I will tell them the same thing. When I look at them, the first thing, your first responsibility, and they always think I'm going to talk about memorizing the books of the Bible or bringing children to a, you know, baptism, but your first responsibility is I want children to consistently walk out of this place, get in the car with their parents and say, I want to come back. There are many of us in this room that grew up with a gnawing, nagging darkness as it related to going to church. I can still right now, David, I can conjure the feeling that I began to feel on Saturday afternoons when I knew Sunday morning was coming. It was this dark, oppressive feeling. The only thing that palliated the entire deal was that on Sunday morning, generally, Dad would stop at Batten's Donuts. And if we got enough sugar in us, we could bear what was about to happen to us in Sunday school in the church. 
it was not an enjoyable experience. And I want us to create an environment because the reality is the re reason I want it to be fun and I want them to say they want to come back is because I know that everything about their spirituality is not going to be settled in the first 18 years. But if we can impact them in such a way, it's just like educators. You're not going to give the kid. The primary goal of an educator is not just to impart mathematics or civics or social studies or English. It's not just to impart those things, but it's to impart a love for education because you're not going to get enough in that child K through 12th grade to change their life forever. But if, Mary, if you can put a love for education in that child, if you can put a love for church, if we can do something so right around here that we put a love for church, then one of these days after their college years and they flipped a little bit when they're 31 and they got their first kid coming and they look at one another and they've been hit and miss, but they look and they say, I want to raise my babies in church. Because we did something right here and we put a fondness for church inside of them. It is a gift to them that will pay them much later. Church is a place where we are to take care of our children. We are to have worship gatherings that inspire and bring people we say bring people into the presence of God knowing that God is always present. What we're saying is we are to have services, worships, or whatever you call them, where the experience of the divine is heightened. Through music and sacrament and preaching, we want to give people experiences that perhaps they can have not alone. I resonate with what David said when David said, God, you are magnified in the midst of the congregation. As much as I experience God, Carolyn, over behind your house in Radnor, as much as I experience God alone, I agree with David. David did not say that God gets bigger, literally. David said God is magnified. To magnify something does not materially change it. It simply changes your perception of it. And David said there's something about the community of faith when I sing with them. When Matt turns down the keyboard, turns down the volume and said, let me hear your voices. When people sing together, when we pray together, when we grow together, there is something that happens in the congregation. It's like that old three by nine Redfield scope. You zoom it in and that animal is just right there. The same is true of God. We are called to touch our children, to have powerful worship gatherings. We are called to educate. We are called to facilitate relationships. And the facilitation of relationships is one of the hardest things that a church ever does. Because we cannot create sociability and likability in you. And we cannot create it in the people sitting beside you. A church cannot give you friendships and cannot make you a friend. But a church is called to facilitate and to nurture opportunities where relationships can grow. I remember in the beginning of our church, and Steve, you might remember this, we tried to start a singles ministry for our folk. And there was a whole group of people that gathered at our house, and it was so exciting. We had like 30 people there and a bunch of single people that were wanting to do a singles ministry. 
And I remember one particular guy was sitting beside me, and when we went around the room and said, what are you looking for in a singles ministry? He literally said, Stephen Barber, you know I'm telling the truth. You, you were there. He literally said, I am looking for fertile women. And I watched all of the women, as he said it, all of the women shrunk 20%, just imploded in on themselves to get away. I looked at him, I thought he would laugh, but he was serious. Later, he came to me and explained to me that he'd given our singles ministry several attempts, but it was just really full of strange people. He later left the church citing the fact that he just couldn't connect here. We cannot make you friendable or fertile. But a church is called to facilitate relationships and to offer people life groups, care groups, meal groups, whatever you call them, to have picnics. We can't educate you. Uh, every time I let Wednesday night go, there is an outcry after six months of we need adult education, bring Wednesday night back. I start Wednesday night again, 70 people come out and within three months it's down to 12. And I don't think it's because I'm a bad teacher. It's because we're busy and Wednesday night is going the way of a lot of things. It's just hard. But we're called to provide opportunities. And if Wednesday night's it, then we are called as a leadership to back up and say, where can it happen? We're called to provide opportunities for service, missions we used to call it, social action we call it now. Call it what you want to. But a church is not a church, especially a progressive Christian community is not a progressive Christian community unless it is not providing pipelines through which people can directly care for the marginalized and the underserved and the hurting in this world. And if you're a part of a church and you're not finding your way into one of those pipelines, you are not going to find the significance that you need to be, as Paul said, fitly joined in the body of Christ. You remember that word, fitly joined in the body of Christ. There are so many people loosely joined, and it just doesn't work long term. You've got to be fitly joined. Another thing that we've learned here on Country Road is there are advantages and disadvantages to being a non-denominational, interdenominational, or free church. It, it has become, for years after I left my denomination with great angst and pain, I reveled in the fact that I was not in a denomination. I love the joke where the little boy said, my mom and daddy's Presbyterian, what abomination are you? <laughs> and as Brother Hardwick used to tell me, a lot of us get down on what we're not up on. And I was pretty down on denominations. But after 14 years pastoring a free, independent church, I not only now 
carry an awareness of the frailties of denominationalism, but I also carry an awareness of what it means to be alone at times and to not have oversight and camaraderie and fellowship. And I don't know exactly where we go from here on that because we have denominations like the UCC, the United Methodist Church, and others who we could be very commiserate to theologically in every way that have invited us and we could move that direction and yet I, I don't feel that's a strong call yet. I told our leadership council the other day, I think it's something that we should consider. And we may come to the point where we do not join, but I think in the consideration of joining, we will recognize these are the deficits that we face. And I think our church to mature needs to explore connection at a deeper level, even if it's not denominational. Another thing that I've learned here on Country Road is something, and I keep referring to him because they've been here a long time, that Steve Weyer has taught this church. And it made my top ten list of things I have learned here at Country Road. And that is that we need story. That we are a people, Steve Hurley, of narrative. And I grew up not really understanding the power of story and yet all of us live a story but by by the statement that we need story what I'm saying is and what Steve has been saying for years in the men's ministry and elsewhere we need to hear one another's story I suppose the reason it did not resonate in me, with me in the beginning was because of the church of my upbringing we had testimony service every service and I had to hear Sister McElwain testify every service. And she told the same story for 40 years. And our, our, our testimonies were wrote and they really weren't our story. They were simply the highly edited holy version that we presented for the saints on Sunday morning. But our journeys are sacred journeys. And we need from one another to go to the intimate levels that could fitly or could be aptly described as fitly joined together. We need to know one another's stories. And as we move forward, one of our, one of our real MOs moving forward, one of our real goals is to facilitate the telling, the sharing, and the hearing of stories. We've done that pretty well through the years. We need to do it better. I've learned here at Country Road that we also need to have fun together. I've learned that holiness isn't just about crying, but holiness may even more be about laughing. And I've learned that sacred worship and reflection doesn't just have to be contained in the poignant, the pensive, and the reflective. But we are never more holy than when we are laughing together and when we are playing together. There is a sacredness to play and we need to do more of it. I've learned here that a local church is more than its people. And it's certainly more than its pastors and leadership council. A local church is in part its parishioners, but a local church is bigger than its parishioners. Because at any given moment, 
a local church may have people who invested there. I've learned this. It may have people who invested there for 12 years and are now gone three weeks. And somebody may walk in the door, Carol, and be there two weeks and they have a vote in that place. So a local church has got to be more than just contemporaneously who the people are there at that moment. What do you mean by this? I am in no way diminishing that a church is very much its people, but a church is more than that. A church is founded as a mission. And it is very important for a church and those who attend it to know that mission and for the people who are committed to that mission to know that in some ways that mission is bigger than their own personal interest. That there is something bigger than even a democracy at play here. That somewhere back when, for whatever reason, a 501c3 was contracted from the government, a group of people gathered around that and imputed to that a mission and that mission is theologically defined that mission is ideologically driven that mission is set and it is bigger than all of us and the mission of this church is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ the gospel of God to a hurting world the mission of this church is to disabuse the Christian church of a fear-based view of God and to do all things to the beauty and the benefit of people but to do all things in keeping with that mission I have learned that without a vision, people perish. And that it is not a democracy, it is not a republic, it is not socialism on one side or uber-capitalism on the other side that makes, an that makes a spiritual institution. It's not Arminianism or Calvinism. It's not Catholic or Protestant. What makes an institution is when there is a clarion vision that is bought into, is viable, and a group of people say, yes and amen, this is bigger than me. And as we move forward, as we move to our new location, there is nothing more important. I think we've spent the last year really speaking to this, but there is nothing more important than us going there, understanding we have a place in the religious economy of Middle Tennessee and the world. We have a place and a role to fill. And it is a good one, and it is a viable one. Just this morning, I received emails from three different pastors. One, I wish I could read it now, but I'd have to pull it up and it'd take a while. A pastor from New York who used to pastor in this city. A concert, our mission is to children, to bless them and to nurture them. Just this morning. I pastor a large evangelical church in New York. I lived in Nashville for 13 years. I worked for Dave Ramsey from 2006 to 2014. I heard you at Devo many times. I remember when the majority, it seemed, of my fellow workers went to Grace Point. I remember when they left. We moved to Nashville in 2005 to plant a church. It did well. 
I'm now pastoring a similar church in Buffalo, New York. God is doing some amazing things in my heart. And yet I have this feeling that somehow what I'm doing is wrong. Could you please help me? Do you have any books about reshaping your view of God, reshaping your view of the Bible? I wrote back, recommended some books. Lastly, I just wanted to say, I always loved your teaching at Dave's. I always wanted to come to Grace Point, but I was busy pastoring my own thing. There's so much that you people are saying at Grace Point, you just don't know it. Stuff that many like me don't know how to articulate, but we've been feeling it in our guts for years. I also wanted to tell you, my wife and I have been listening to all of your services. We've been doing this for the last three years, and we've been so encouraged. I'm so impressed by your church, its spirit, the humility that exudes in that congregation during this time of difficult transition. I just wanted you to know that for a pastor a long way away who's scared to death, your church is speaking volumes. I've been drinking from a fire hose the past few months, people that I hear you mention like Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, Peter Enns. I just wanted you to tell the people who work with you and you, the congregation, that you've played a big part in a new understanding and a broader way of thinking. Thank you. Keep it up. This church has a mission that's bigger than any one of us, including me. Way bigger. And we are called to move with that vision and to nurture that vision and to be true to that vision. And I also want you to know that I have learned that a local church's purpose, as much as I said what I said, a local church's purpose can be impacted and can shift over time. A local church can shift and grow and the mission that it once had can change through a complex development over time that is fostered and created by pastors, leadership council, and congregation in a dance of interplay too complex to describe and perhaps even understand. I do not believe that has happened at this church. At the end of these eight years, I literally thought I would retire in this building. There is so much pathos, psychology, ego wrapped up in this building for me. There is so much shame, sense of failure mixed with a God-breathed excitement that scarcely it would take not the hand of a psychiatrist, therapist, or spiritual guide. It would take a nail-printed hand to untangle the snarl that exists in my soul as we come down the home stretch. But in that snarl, I feel peace.
It may not be like a river. It may be a trickle, but I feel peace. And there will be some that walk out of this place and it will be so easy because the new place is closer and there's a part of me that it will be easy because I think the new place is better. But Tommy Bell's got to figure out how to get Billy Bell's memorial tree out of this yard. There are roots here that are entangled around our hearts. They're entangled around our organs. But I do not sense, Tommy, that those roots are so entangled with our life that, that we can't, with the help of a good horticulturalist and savior, untangle all of this and move gracefully and graciously together to the next chapter of our life as a church together. And as the writer of the Hebrew scripture said at the end of the Israelite journey, all the way my saviors led me. As Fanny Crosby so beautifully wrote, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Our vision is intact. Seven or eight hundred people call this place home. A beautiful congregation has almost miraculously opened themselves to us and said, Here. And we are clinging to one another, and there is a vision. It is viable, and my gut is, is fine, when I finally get over my sense of failure and nostalgia and sentimentality and histrionics, that we'll get on the other side of this, and we are going to be there, and it's going to be so beautiful. And the last shall be former than the first. And the next chapter will be as blessed as all those that have led us to this place. I have learned Lee England, Carol England, some lessons down here on Country Road. I think we all have. Now, let us go do better. And let us go and be good to one another. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. God bless you. Go in Christ's peace. We'll see you next week.